The water started flowing on March 12, 1868. The men who had spent months digging and hauling dirt and rock must have watched with eager anticipation as a steady stream of water left the Salt River and moved down the channel. Perhaps no one was more eager than Jack Swilling. This had been his idea, after all. The ex-Confederate soldier had arrived in Wickenburg the previous year and sold some of the men there on the project. His idea was simple build a canal to help irrigate the hot valley floor along the Salt River, then sell crops to the miners in Wickenburg and the even closer army post at Fort McDowell. For months, the 15 men had toiled, and now were reaping the reward as water ran through what was affectionately nicknamed Swilling's Ditch. His vision paid off. In just four years, there were 8,000 acres of irrigated land being used to grow barley, wheat, corn, beans, and sweet potatoes, not to mention the grapevines and fruit trees. Now, if that little introduction sounds at all familiar, it's because I lifted that verbatim from the introduction I did for episode 4. At the time, I was using that introduction as a springboard to talk about where Swilling got his idea from, namely the old Hohokam canals that were everywhere in the Salt River Valley. But, As I sat down to hammer out this week's episode, I couldn't think of a better way to introduce what we are going to cover today. Because we are now chronologically at the point in our story where Swilling is in the Salt River Valley with his men reviving those old canals. And that can only mean it's time to finally bring the city of Phoenix into our story. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Episode 57, A Tale of Two Cities. Welcome back, everyone. After covering the vicious and brutal Wallapai War last week, it's time to go back to the continually proliferating American settlements across the territory of Arizona. But before we dive headlong into the story of the founding of Phoenix, we need to look south first. That is, I want to touch on the status of Tucson, which was the only real city in Arizona until just very recently. Though we dealt with its founding roughly nine episodes ago, We must remember that at this point in our story, Prescott is only about three years old. Sure, there were mining camps and army forts in the area going back a little further, but on the whole, the capital of the territory was exceedingly young. However, Tucson, as you will all remember, could date its founding back to the 1770s and for decades had the sole claim to being the only real city Arizona had to offer. The only reason it had not gotten the nod to be the territorial capital is because it had been the home base for a lot of Southerners who had either suspected or outright sympathies for the Confederacy. But that is about to change. Remember from a couple episodes ago that John N. Goodwin has left the post of territorial governor to become the delegate to Congress. And stepping into his place was Richard C. McCormick. Much can be said, and much has been said by me already, about McCormick and his political career. 
He appears to have been an adroit politician, ready to jump on this or that initiative that would keep him in office. Historian Howard R. Lamar remarks that friends, and especially enemies, referred to him as Slippery Dick. Immediately after his elevation to governor, folks began to complain that he hadn't come by his political success honestly. Federal Judge William F. Turner wrote a scathing letter about McCormick to the U.S. Secretary of the Interior, complaining that he had been appointing so-called copperheads, Democrats who had been pro-union but anti-war, to open positions instead of good, loyal unionists. Then, of course, there was his ownership of the Daily Miner newspaper, from which he was able to mold public opinion about his own administration. Finally, and most scandalously, Turner accused McCormick of gaining popular support by putting, quote, the bottle to his neighbor's mouth, end quote. Though McCormick himself was not a drinker, he was accused of helping others give in to the worst vices of the saloon in order to drum up political support. This was actually a fairly common tactic among politicians at the time, so I have no problem believing that McCormick may be bought around for the House a time or two. The reason I'm bringing up his, let's call it, flexible politics is to tie it back around to Tucson. Because in 1867, the territorial legislature passed a bill that quote-unquote permanently moved the capital down to the old Pueblo, effective in November of that year. Everyone not from Pima County began crying foul immediately. Those in Prescott were ready to believe that this had been done as part of some backroom shenanigans. A newspaper editorial declared, quote, We are assured upon good authority that improper proceedings to the extent of buying three or four members of the fourth legislature and pledging to Governor McCormick to support him for Congress at that place, Tucson. If this does not come under the head of improper proceedings, we are at loss to know what does, end quote. Every source I have says that accusations of bribery and quid pro quo agreements were openly tossed around, but ultimately there was no solid evidence that could be seized upon. So, the territorial capital dutifully moved south to Tucson. And, in the words of one historian, quote, Tucsonans were as elated as the Prescott residents were disappointed, end quote. The new legislative session dutifully met in the new capital, though not everyone showed up. Only one of six members from Yavapai County were there, while Yuma and Mojave were each missing a person. I don't have it written down whether this was done in protest of the move or due to the extreme difficulty of crossing the territory. To support the latter argument, we do have the testimony of the representative of Mojave County who actually made it, and the representative from the disputed Paiute County, who had a rough travel by boat and stagecoach, both of which were complicated by hostile Amerindians. You'll sometimes see it written that this legislature met in the Congress Hall Saloon. While there is no doubt that many of the legislators did wind up there to, in the words of one historian, quote, lubricate their vocal cords and to wipe their large mustaches, End quote. This is not true. 
The legislature actually met in an old adobe building located on Ochoa Street in what is now downtown Tucson. It wasn't that fancy of a place, and the lawmakers were said to have carved out crevices in the adobe with pen knives in order to have some place to file their paperwork. Which, I have to say, reminds me of the first meeting of the legislature in Prescott when lawmakers didn't even have windows or a floor. While this move didn't turn out to be permanent, Tucson would hold on to the capital for another 12 years, before more political wrangling got it transferred back to Prescott in 1879, and finally to... Well, now I'm just getting ahead of myself. Although there was no hard evidence that anything hinky had occurred to shift the capital away from Prescott, the year after this move, 1868, we get some very compelling circumstantial evidence. That's when McCormick decided to run for the territory's congressional delegate seat, which he easily won, beating out a Democratic challenger and the independent candidate Samuel Adams, who had lost his bid for the seat for like the third straight time in a row. What's telling about this victory is that roughly three-fourths of McCormick's 1,237 votes came from Pima County. So if there had been some sort of backroom agreement, this is where it came into play, and McCormick got to move from the governorship to the cushiest job in the territory. And the old Pueblo finally got its shot to be Arizona's capital, which after everything it has been through since its founding, kind of feels earned. Though we should remember that we are still talking about a frontier town here. As one historian put it, the place was not elegant, with buildings built flush against the roads and it was lacking paving, sidewalks, lawns, and trees. Just to wrap things up with something of a sense of irony, I'm going to turn back to something related by historian Howard R. Lamar. Always eager to point out hypocrisy or the foibles of politicians, Lamar states that after McCormick let the capital get moved to Tucson, the extremely flexible politician saw just how unpopular the move was everywhere else and actually campaigned for the congressional seat on a ticket that called for it to be sent back to Prescott. I don't find that tidbit anywhere else, and I'm not sure how much McCormick could actually campaign on removing the capital from Tucson while still gaining Pima County votes, but I wanted to pass it along nonetheless. But with Tucson sitting pretty with the capital at the moment, it's time to turn our attention back northward. That's right, after all the buildup, it's time to finally talk about the Salt River Valley. The original valley, as it's colloquially known by its modern inhabitants, is some 17,700 square miles, stretching the 40 miles along the river between the Sierra Estrellas in the west and the Superstitions in the east, and was originally only some 15 miles between South Mountain to the northern Phoenix Mountains. Of course, those boundaries aren't really what they used to be, as anyone living in Ahwatukee, Anthem, Buckeye, and Apache Junction today would tell you. Four different rivers come together in that area, the Verde, Salt, Gila, and Agua Fria, and the salt in particular was singled out as a perennial source of water. 
Most of the early descriptions say that the banks of the river were lined with cottonwood and willow trees, in addition to other plants. As just a small diversion, during my journalism days, a fellow reporter was talking with an expert who relayed that the part of the Salt River you can see while driving on the Loop 202 Red Mountain Freeway between Dobson and McClintock Roads is as close to how the river used to look as we can get today. Most notably, however, is that up until this point in our story, no one was living there. The Odom and related tribes stayed near the Gila River, possibly to avoid conflicts with the Yavapai or Tonto Apache, while the Spanish and Mexicans never really got past Tucson. The Americans were all up in Prescott and along the Colorado. Of course, we know that people had once lived there, but the Hohokam had abandoned the Salt River in the 15th century AD, and no one had moved in since. It's time to change all of that. The first real settlement anywhere near the valley would be at Fort McDowell. This outpost, established in 1865 at the junction of Sycamore Creek and the Verde River east of modern Scottsdale, had been set up to keep an eye on all those Tonto Apache and Yavapai to ensure they weren't going to cause too much trouble. A lot of punitive expeditions would be launched from this lonely outpost in coming years, which we'll eventually get to. The fort was named for General Irvin McDowell, who oversaw the military department of the Pacific, which Arizona was attached to. But the award for being the first permanent white settler in the Salt River Valley goes to a man named John Y.T. Smith. Smith, who had been a member of the California Column, came to the area in that finest of American traditions, seizing a business opportunity. You see, the soldiers at Fort McDowell had trouble raising food to sustain themselves and feed for their animals, and shipping items in from New Mexico or California was prohibitively expensive. So, in either 1866 or early 1867, I've seen both dates, Smith moved into the Salt River Valley to help ease one of those problems by harvesting wild hay that grew along the river's floodplain. Granted a contract to supply the fort, he erected a small hay camp, cleverly known as Smith Station, that sat around 40th Street in Washington, or just north of the eastern edge of Sky Harbor International Airport. He would also build his own road heading toward the fort, along which he grazed some cattle. And if you'll permit me, I want to dive into something of a digression. Smith is a mere footnote in our story, only noteworthy due to his being the first American in the valley. But he does have at least one funny story connected with him. John Smith is his original, full, given name. The YT part was added years later, after he had gotten involved in territorial politics. In 1874, a newspaper editor commented unfavorably on having a man named John Smith run for the Territorial Assembly. Already tired of having met way too many other people with the same name, and probably more than a little ticked off that a man with a solid reputation would be attacked because his name was too generic, Smith did something about it. He went to the state legislature and legally changed his name, adding Y.T. 
as his middle initials. And believe it or not, the YT stands for Yours Truly. With Smith's station now set up and running hay along the Salt River, it's time to bring in our main player, that old Confederate soldier, Union Scout, member of the Walker Party, and all-around adventurer, Jack Swilling. As I'm gearing up for the last few episodes before my wedding hiatus, I have the notion to take an episode and just flesh out some of the characters who keep popping up and I have not done full justice to, and believe me, Swilling is high on that list. But this is where he makes his biggest contribution to the history of Arizona. Swilling had passed through the valley several times, but in September 1867, some sources say it was November, he was making the journey from Fort McDowell to Wickenburg and spent a few days at Smith's Station. And it's while staying here that Swilling started putting together a few factors. He saw the sheer abundance of Hohokam ruins, especially the extensive canal system, still recognizable after four centuries. He did the mental calculations about the need for supplies both at Fort McDowell and the boomtown of Wickenburg. He saw that the salt was a steady supply of water. And when all those factors were thrown together, it added up to an opportunity. As early state historian Thomas Farish put it, quote, It seemed an easy task to throw these waters over the fertile desert, which was all that was necessary to make this desert valley blossom as a rose. End quote. With this vision dancing in his head, Swilling pressed on to Wickenburg. Once there, he organized the Swilling Irrigating Canal Company and began fishing around for investors, selling 50 shares in the company at $200 a pop. Included among his investors were Henry Wickenburg, the founder of the Vulture Mine, and L.J.F. Yeager, a prosperous trader and ferry operator from Yuma. Eventually, a group of just over 15 men followed Swilling back to the Salt River Valley in December 1867 to get his dream of irrigating the desert off the ground. They started clearing out an old Hohokam Canal on the north bank of the Salt River across from modern Tempe, but then they had the exasperating experience of many a builder digging in the area. That is, they hit a layer of the cement-like caliche. After spending roughly $500 up to this point, the cost of cutting through the caliche was too high. So they moved downstream, closer to Smith Station, and started digging roughly where 40th Street would hit the north bank of the river today if it wasn't for Sky Harbor. And that leads us back to where we started, with the water flowing in March 1868. According to one contemporary account, the honor of having their field irrigated first went to Charles L. Adams, the eponym of the tiny settlement of Adamsville along the Gila River, and a man called Frenchy Sawyer. Apparently, there is a small plaque at the corner of 24th Street in Washington attesting to this, if anyone has the time and inclination to find it for me. The reopened canal ran northwest for about a mile and a half to irrigate fields of wheat and barley before curling back southward to hit the river. And you'll find various names for this first canal, with some sources calling it Swilling's Ditch, others the Town Ditch, while others have the more august Salt River Canal. 
Eventually, it would be expanded, running along Van Buren Street as far west as 27th Avenue. State historian Marshall Trimble relates that in its heyday, the ditch was used for everything. Irrigation, drinking water, laundry, even bathing. Some even reported that saloon owners would surreptitiously clean out their spittoons in it. When the water started flowing in March, there were about 50 people on site. Yavapai County officially recognized the settlement in May 1868 by setting up a voter precinct. This was followed by a post office being established the next month, with Swilling serving as postmaster. And because the early state historians are very good at hunting down such things, James H. McClintock lets us know that the first baby of American parents in Phoenix was born in the spring of 1868 to the Adams family, and that baby's older sister became the first bride in the settlement in April. Swilling himself built an adobe home on the site of some ancient Hohokam ruins near the head of the canal. However, keep in mind that not everything was rosy. It was still hot and dry with plenty of things out there to stick, bite, and poison you. And state historian Thomas Sheridan says that Swilling and others got a taste for what farming along the Salt River could really be like when heavy summer rain sent a large flood sweeping downstream in September 1868. This is most likely what the Hohokam had experienced too, and massive flooding is one of the theories given for their eventual disappearance from the valley. Though American irrigation would continue unabated, we should always remember that until the building of the dams on the Upper Salt in the early 20th century, farming along its banks could be a dicey proposition. Now that we have people living and farming in what will become Phoenix, it's time to give the settlement its proper name. The area where Swilling and his company had opened Swilling's Ditch soon became known as Swilling's Mill, Mill City, and Stonewall. That last one was Swilling's suggestion, as the Georgia-born Southerner wanted to name the burgeoning community after Civil War General Stonewall Jackson. The matter wouldn't be decided until 1870, when the 235-some-odd residents now living in the area wanted an official town site plotted so there would be a business center to facilitate trade. Swilling himself preferred a space near 30th Street between Van Buren and Roosevelt, where a friend of his was building a flour mill. Another faction, however, argued for a site at Van Buren and 16th Street, where one of their number owned a saloon. Those were the major contenders, at least, with others arguing for other locations for their own particular business interests. On October 20th, 1870, John T. Alsap, a territorial representative for Yavapai County that had recently moved to the area, held a meeting attended by 130 residents to discuss where to officially put the town site. During this meeting, Alsap proposed making the official town center somewhere currently unappropriated that wouldn't favor one business over another. This decision was thrown to a three-man committee that came back several days later and approved Alsap's plan. The 320-acre plot was a rectangle that would eventually be bounded by Van Buren and Harrison on the north and south, and 7th Avenue and 7th Street on the west and east. 
This area had several advantages, including being about a mile north of the river and high enough not to be touched when the salt decided to get angry and flood. There were no Hohokam ruins there to impede building, and it was relatively free of desert growth as well. Finally, it lay basically at the center of what was then considered the Salt River Valley. So, we have a town site now. But we need a name. I will add in here that McClintock does give an offhand remark that one settler wanted to call the place Salinas, a name that was rejected quite quickly because no one wanted to live in a community whose name translated to Salt Marsh. And this is where we get the first suggestion of calling this new settlement Phoenix. Most histories of the state are quick to say that the name, taken from the mythological bird that was reborn from its own ashes, was aptly appended to this new rising community built upon the centuries-old ruins of the Hohokam canals and settlements. But they are less quick to talk about who first proposed this allusion to classical Greek mythology. While there are some that point to Swilling himself as the source of the name, most give the credit to an eccentric Englishman named Daryl Dupa. Dupa, or Lord Dupa as he styled himself, was born Brian Philip Daryl Dupa on October 9, 1832, in Paris, France. From the various accounts that Lord Dupa left with people, it's surmised that he came from a respectable family and his father was serving as a British consul in France when he was born. But Brian, or excuse me, Lord Duba, appears to have been the black sheep of the family and may have run away from home while still in his teens. According to one account passed along by Farish, Duba went to France where he managed to graduate from a prestigious school there before moving on to Spain. By this same account, he sailed to Valparaiso, Chile, where he was the sole survivor of a shipwreck. He is then said to have traveled all around South America, and then to New Zealand and Australia, before finally coming to California and eventually Arizona. However, according to yet another account, Dupa had joined the English Army young and even attained the rank of a colonel but killed a fellow officer in a duel and was forced to leave the army and emigrate to America. What we can say for certain was that he was in Arizona by 1863, and in short order became a close friend of Swilling's, joining him in the Salt River Valley after the old Confederate soldier had come recruiting men in Wickenburg. He was also a member of that three-man committee which eventually decided on the original town site. Sometime between 1868 and 1872, he built a two-room adobe house with salt cedar poles at 116 West Sherman Street in Phoenix, just west of where First Avenue is today. And, funny enough, it's still there. Seriously, find it on Google Maps. It's this tiny little building next to a parking lot surrounded by a fence. The way it sticks out of the modern city is almost laughable. And according to state historian Marshall Trimble, it is the oldest standing house in Phoenix. As for his character, Dupa appears to have fit right in with the rough and tumble men who make up Arizona's early history. 
He is described variously as both a man of enlightened ideas and tastes, and, according to another source, a foolhardy drunk. Many of the people who met him remarked that he spoke five languages, English, French, Spanish, Italian, and German. He was also known to have copies of the works of Ovid and Homer in their original Latin and Greek, respectively, and could quote the poetry of Shakespeare for hours on end. However, as pointed out by Trimble, Dupa was also known to be hard to understand because he was frequently drunk and prone to speaking all five of his known languages at once. Most considered him something of an eccentric, especially after he moved to a small, lonely way station on the Agua Fria River along the Phoenix-Wickenburg Road. Here he had ceaseless trouble with the Apache, and one person claimed that Dupa had three bullets in him from Apache rifles. When asked why he was so insistent on staying at such a lonely, inhospitable place with deadly opponents all around him, Lord Dupa is said to have replied that the Apache had attacked him the moment he had approached the river, so he set up shop there just to prove to them that he could do it. Dupa would eventually move back to Phoenix, where he died on January 30th, 1892, at the age of 59. If you want, you can visit his gravesite at the Pioneer and Military Memorial Park Cemetery in downtown Phoenix. And when you go, make sure to thank him for naming the town that you are in, probably during one of his more sober moments. We'll also get into this in a future episode, but you might also want to thank Dupa for naming the city of Tempe, which he did after taking inspiration from the Vale of Tempe in Greece. For now, though, we are going to leave things here. Tucson is Arizona's capital, but the city destined to take that title permanently is now on its way up, and it has a catchy, classically inspired name to boot. Join me next week as we circle back around to what Cochise has been doing for the past few years and close out the 1860s with what was at the forefront of everyone's mind, being raided and killed by Restless Apache. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.